Please turn in your Bibles once more to uh, Romans chapter 8. As we have a continue with our look at Romans, let's pray. Father, as we come again to look upon your word, we ask again that you will open our eyes that we may see you as you really are, that you will open our ears that we may hear and understand the message of your truth and that you will open our hearts to receive that message, that we may not just be hearers of it, but doers also. Amen. Uh, Have you ever had one of those really annoying phone calls? You know, the ones that um, people are trying to sell you life insurance. Um, If you work at that job, please forgive me, I'm about to mock you. You know what, I mean? you know what they, they try and do? They, they, uh, they make you feel really uncertain about the future. And uh, you, have a, you never know what might happen to you and what will happen to your family and so on. And, and they try and play on the, uh, on the uncertainty of the future to make you lose your certainty in the present. And so that you give them money to set up a policy which you personally will never be able to use. It makes perfect sense, of course, to insure a car or a house. If they get burnt down or smashed up, you can use the insurance policy uh, and get them patched up or even get a new one. But it doesn't work that way with with a life, does it? No amount of money you pay in will mean you can get a new one or the old one rebooted or patched up when it's gone. Now, maybe I'm far too cynical about these things. Um... Part of the reason uh, for my cynicalness is what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8. For Paul actually shows us that it's perfectly possible to have insurance for the future. And because of that, assurance in the present. But he's not talking about a company insurance policy. He's talking about the hope that the gospel brings. He's talking about God's life insurance that he gives us through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the continuing work of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 is the high watermark. In a very long and very logical argument Paul has been making since chapter 1, verse 16. He has traced for us the gospel in some very deep and some very dense theological reasoning, as you know if you went along with all this. And he's given us a lot of threads that are now, as he begins this chapter, starting to come together. From chapter 1 to to chapter 4, Paul was showing us how we are made right with God through the work of the cross, through Jesus by faith. Then into chapter 5, he began to show us what it actually means for us as a Christian. Chapter 6 and 7, he has shown us what the cross means for the way we live and the experiences that we have as a Christian in the present. Now in Romans 8, he weaves everything together. Lots of what he has said previously is going to come up again. And he's going to give us a wonderful chapter of assurance in the Christian life. Up to now, we've heard of the reality of our peace with God through faith in Jesus and how we have been made righteous, how we've been taken out of Adam and brought into Christ through the work of the Spirit, how we've been called to live out the reality of our new relationship with Jesus by living towards God. 
Yet at the same time, we battle to actually carry out the desires that we have to live for God in this life because of, because of our fallenness, because of what remains of Adam in this present age. Now Paul brings it together, brings us assurance, brings us hope of our, because of what he says in this. Hope for the struggling Christian. Hope for the suffering Christian. So in verses 1 to 4 here, he speaks about our new status and our new life. In verses 5 through 11, he talks about our new minds and our new bodies. In verses 12 to 17, he talks about our new family and our new destiny. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, says Paul, if everything I have said so far in this argument is correct and true, that means, then in light of it all, that there is now, that is now in this present age, between Christ's first and second coming, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Condemnation here is the very opposite of justification. Condemnation is a sentence of guilt that deserves punishment by death. And it's not just the sentence, it's the execution of that sentence as well. It's both the dock and the gallows all in one. But there's no condemnation for Christians who are in Christ. Remember chapter 6, we saw that where we, there we were united to Christ by, by faith. As a Christian, we have no fear of God's wrath coming upon us to condemn us because we are united to Christ. Rather, there is a new status for us, a new legal verdict. Remember back to chapter 3, that great passage about the atonement. And how we saw that because of the cross, we are legally declared righteous. The very opposite of being condemned. Then in the verses that follow Paul, Paul lays out why we have our new status with God. As ever in Romans, Paul's logic, uh, Paul's very logical reasoning is quite dense and can be quite difficult to grasp it for those of us who live in the soundbite age. But if you look at the link words in the passage, you are, you know, it'll help you get to grips with what Paul's saying. Words like chapter 2 begins with because. So verse 1 is correct because of verse 2. And verse 2 depends on verse 3. For, for verse 3 starts with the word for or because again, same word. If you get the link words, it becomes easier to follow Paul's logic and what he's saying. So verse 2, we know there is no condemnation because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit here, referring back to chapter 7, verse 6, where the spirit writes the law in our hearts as opposed to the law of sin and death, which we saw in chapter 7 as well. Remember, Paul has told us that the law was powerless to save us, that it was only only brought sin to light and resulted in death, as sin would use the good law, the good law of Moses, to kill us. 
So now there is no condemnation, because through Christ, the law of the Spirit has set us free from from the condemnation that the law brings. Remember, chapter 6, the wages of sin is death. The moral law coming to us brings death, because we cannot keep it. But through Christ, the Spirit has set us free. And how did it do that? Verse 3, 4, what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man. Think back again, chapter 7. Remember that we saw there when the sinful nature, our fallen nature, that part of us that remains in Adam in this age, when it meets the law, there's fireworks. Because sin provoked in us all kinds of rebellion when the law came. The law, because of our sinfulness, was powerless to bring us life. It was powerless to change us. It was powerless to make us righteous. Paul, in chapter 7, verses 8 to 13, gave the example of his own life before he was a Christian. The law was powerless to change him. But what the law was powerless to do, God did. What the law could not do because of our fallenness, God was able to do. And how did he do it? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man. By sending Jesus to become a human being, to be made a man and to be like us. To suffer the temptations we suffer. To live with our weaknesses, but to remain sinless. And ultimately to be a sin offering. Remember chapter 3 again. Christ came as our substitute. He died for our sin. God condemned sin in his body as he offered himself as a sacrifice to propitiate, that is, to turn away the wrath of a holy God. So in the death of Jesus, God did what the law could not do. He condemned sin. He punished sin. He poured out his wrath on the man Jesus to change us from being condemned sinners to being righteous saints. Notice verse 4 starts with, in order. Here's the reason. God did it in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. So that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in you and me. So that the good, right, holy law, which gives us the standard which God requires, the standard of righteousness that God wants, that that might be fulfilled in us. So that God could say, I have changed you. I have made you righteous. And so you are free from my wrath and my condemnation. Jesus did what we could not. He lived by the law perfectly. He fulfilled the law's demands. And God punished him for our sin. So that his perfect obedience and his perfect righteousness might be transferred to us. So to give us a new life, a new status, righteous, 
a new life through the Holy Spirit. For who are we as Christians? Well, we're those who live according to the Spirit, not according to the sinful nature. Remember again, chapters 6 and 7. We live by the Spirit. We seek to please God, to say no to sinfulness and ungodliness, and yes to godliness and holiness. Not so that we can be righteous, but rather because God has made us righteous. As we sit here tonight, there is not a single person here, you or me, who does not deserve the verdict of condemnation. We are all sinners. Paul has told us that. Remember chapters 1 through 3. He has proved it beyond a shadow of a doubt. We deserve the wrath of God. We deserve his holy anger. But God did what the law and religion, what circumcision and what we were powerless to do. He sent Jesus to die. He sent him to redeem us and to make us righteous so that we might live by the Spirit, not in rebellion against God, but in obedience to God. Even when we feel and sin still works within us in this present age, we can be assured that our status before God is righteous. That is not a thing that we have to try and climb to, friends. It's not a standard we have to try and obtain. It is a new life. It is a new status God has given us, a declaration. The Nazis tattooed numbers onto many poor Jews that were sent to the concentration camps. That number meant that they were certain of death. That number gave them a specific status that would mean that no matter what happened, they would die. My friends, if you're a Christian, you have a new status. That means you can't be condemned. You're the opposite of those poor Jews in the 1940s. Your new status is righteous, and God is sending you not to a concentration camp to die, but to a new heavens and a new earth to experience eternal life. But between receiving our new status and going to the new heavens and new earth, we must live by the Spirit. Paul now lets us know what it means to, in terms of a new mind and a new body. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the, that nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of the sinful man is death but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. There are only two options open, as Paul explains. Either we live by the Spirit or the sinful nature, literally the flesh. But the difference between living by the Spirit and living by the sinful nature is the difference of the mind. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their mind set on what that sinful nature desires. They are in rebellion against God. They fulfill their own wants, their own desires. They are those such as Paul had explained to us in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and onwards. 
those who suppress the truth about God. But those who live according to the Spirit have their minds on what the Spirit desires. They seek to live by the Spirit. They seek to live to please God in grateful thanks for what God has done for them in Christ. Keep chapter 6 and 7 in the back of your minds here. And the result of those two mindsets are dramatically different. For the mind of the sinful man is death. The fruit that was produced from sinfulness was death. Eternal death. But the mind that is controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Remember chapter 5. We have peace with God, said Paul, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And how in Christ there is life as opposed to death in Adam. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It rebels against him and his righteous rule over us. In reality, it's impossible for anyone who is controlled by the sinful nature to please God. Indeed, they wouldn't even want to anyway, for they're in open rebellion against him. The sinful nature, as we saw in chapter 7, exploits every opportunity to bring rebellion and to get us to disobey God. And if you are here and you're not a Christian, this is describing you. Hostile to God, refusing to submit to God and his rule over you. You're a slave to sin, controlled by your sinful fallen nature. Free to disobey God, but totally unable to obey him. But if you're a Christian, if you have the spirit of Christ dwelling in you, verse 9 If you belong to Christ through the Spirit, then you're not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. Your mind is set on what the Spirit wants, and as a result, is set on what God wants. God wants us to live a holy life and to obey Him. The Spirit causes us to walk in obedience. Remember what we looked at this morning in uh, Ezekiel 36. We saw how God had promised to write his law on people's hearts and to move them to walk in his good statutes and laws. Or we could equally look at Jeremiah 31 verse 33 for the exact same promise. Those who are controlled by the Spirit have them a mind that is set on living in a way that desires to please God. They desire obedience They desire to submit to his kingly rule. But those who do not have Christ do not belong, do not have the Spirit, do not belong to Christ. They do not have a new mind, nor indeed do they have a new body in the future, verses 10 and 11. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. If Christ is in you, that is, if the Spirit dwells in you, even when your mortal body that still suffers the effects of sin and will ultimately result in physical death for you, even when we are still partly in Adam because of the Spirit, We are made spiritually alive because of righteousness. That is righteousness that God has given us through the death of Jesus for us. And because 
The Spirit that dwells in us is the same Spirit, that, same, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead to a new, new resurrection life. So also, so also we can look forward to our mortal bodies being resurrected as well. The Spirit who raised Jesus will raise us to a new life for a new bodily resurrection life that will be free from all pain and sorrow that we, that we experience now in this present life. Remember back to chapter 7, we saw that even with the Spirit in our hearts, we are still struggling against indwelling sin. We're not controlled by it, yet it still causes us to sin. It's still a reality for us. But you see the hope in this little passage. We struggle now, but in the future, the Spirit will give us a new life. Our bodies that will go through physical death will be made new and holy, and we will be united, body and spirit, and the struggle with sin will be over. With new resurrection life comes release from the remains of Adam's broken world. It will mean total liberation from the fight with sin. It's a hopeful future for those who are controlled by the Spirit. We will die. Our loved ones will die. We will struggle with sin in our present lives, but our future will be sure. Our future will be guaranteed because of the Spirit that is work with, at work within us. Those who do not belong to Christ do not have such a hope. They too will be resurrected, but not to new life, rather to eternal death and condemnation. These are the two ways, either with a new mind and the promise of a new body, or with a sinful mind and the reward that it leads to. The fruit that it produces, death. Therefore, verse 12, if we have this new mind and future because of the Spirit and what Christ has done for us in his death to make us righteous, we have an obligation. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the, the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Our obligation is to God, not, not the old sinful nature. We all receive from that sinful nature. All, all we receive from that sinful nature is, is condemnation, the promise of eternal death. There is no future hope or assurance with that sinful nature. Rather, our obligation is to live out the reality of our new life in the Spirit. Remember again what Paul had been calling us to do in chapter 6. We are to put to death, that is literally here, to murder the misdeeds of the body. This is not a once-for-all time thing. Paul wrote this in in the present continuous tense. That means it's an ongoing reality. We must continue to put to death our sinful desires and wants. We must murder off our sinful nature by the Spirit. See, it's not some kind of passive let go and let God thing here. 
We're called to do this. This is active, but it's also done by the Spirit, Spirit working in us, changing us, helping us to put to death the deeds of the body. For our obligation is to God now to live in a way that pleases Him. And this, what Paul is talking about here, is not a, not a form of works religion that he's trying to bring in subtly. He's telling us this because we are Christians and have the Spirit. We need to live by the Spirit. And if we are led by the Spirit, we will continue in holiness because, for, or in verse 14, anyone who is led by the Spirit is a son or daughter of God. Now, some people want to get all worked up about what uh, but the way the Spirit leads people. But the leading of the Spirit that Paul speaks of here is a leading to fight against sin, a leading to, to ever-increasing holiness. The Spirit is leading us to the new Jerusalem, to be part of a new family. That's what the leading of the Spirit is. It would be a mistake to think of the Spirit that somehow for example, leads us to get out of bed on the right side rather than the left side. That's not the, the, the leading of the Spirit gives. It's not the way He leads us. I, uh, I watched the, the, the movie, uh, the book of Eli on uh, Friday night. It's a good movie. Um, somebody had recommended it to us and uh, we took a look because the Bible is involved in it. You know, it's a surprise for Hollywood, but there you go. Um, but in the movie, there's this... I don't want to spoil it for you either, so I'll, I'll make this brief. In the movie, there's a man called Eli. And he hears a voice in his head leading him to go and find the last surviving Bible in the world. And he tells... Uh, and this voice in his head tells him to head west. He's in America. Uh, it's... The end of the world has happened and there's still people alive, but you'll get the point when you watch it. Uh, but he, he does this for 30 years. He's marching across America for 30 years and he finally gets to his de destination and is able to get the Bible into print again, along with all the other, the Quran and various other things as well, which is a bit disappointing at the end, but never mind. Yes. That kind of thing, that is not the leading of the Holy Spirit. That's not what the Spirit leads us like. The Spirit leads us to holiness. It leads us towards God. That means if you are struggling against sin in your life, you are being led by the Holy Spirit. You see, this is what true spirituality actually is when you continue to struggle against sin and the fallen nature that remains in us. It's not about transcendental meditation like Russell Brand would want to do, or it's not about finding yourself through the use of chemical substances or endlessly looking into yourself. Real Christianity, real spirituality is the struggle to keep in step with the Spirit as He leads us to love God and love our neighbor. It's discovering that, this, that though our own sinfulness and seeking to repent and turn away from our own selfishness, turn back to God and to our neighbor. And if we are led by the Spirit of God to do this, then we are also sons and daughters of God. And how can Paul say that? Well, look at verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. We are sons and daughters of God because we have received 
the Spirit, not our Spirit as the NIV translated, but the Spirit of adoption, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who makes us know that God is our Father. We did not receive the Holy Spirit to be a slave again to our sinful nature. Sin is no longer our master. That kind of slavery only brought, us, only brought with us the terror and fear of condemnation, the terror and fear of death. But we have the spirit of sonship, the spirit of adoption. We have a new family with God as our father. We don't fear his judgment, but we love him as a father. And verse 16 gives us the assurance that subjectively, we know we are God's children because the Holy Spirit testifies with our own inner being, our own spirit. That is, he assures us that we are adopted into this new family. But it's not just that we are adopted into a new family, for we also have a new destiny. Verse 17. Now, if we were children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Because we are God's children, we are also heirs of his kingdom and co-heirs with our Lord Jesus Christ. We have a new destiny to reign with Christ in his kingdom. Because we are God's children, we stand to inherit what God has promised to us. A new heavens and a new earth, a new city, the heavenly Jerusalem, an inheritance that cannot perish, spoil, or fade. Remember back to chapter 4 where Paul had told us that by faith we are heirs of the promises to Abraham, God's new humanity, a new people. You see, in Roman times, to the people Paul was writing to, they would have understood that it was possible for a slave who served a family at that time to be adopted into the family and actually become an heir of the master's estate. So it is with us. We were slaves. Slaves to sin. The fear of judgment. But we're no longer slaves. We're sons. We're daughters of God. Through the Spirit of God dwelling in us. Leading us to holiness. We are heirs of a new kingdom. With a new destiny to reign with Christ. So are you struggling as a Christian? Are you disheartened with your struggle as you face uh, the sin in your life? Maybe you wonder sometimes whether or not you're actually a Christian at all. You're so disgusted with yourself at times because of your own sinfulness. Then this passage is what you need. You need to know about your new status before God. You need to know about your new life by the Spirit. You need the encouragement to keep fighting the sinful nature with your new mind and the hope that you have in the future, a future with a new body, with a release from the struggle, a future where we will be body and spirit together, sinless and perfect. And you need to know that you're adopted and your inheritance is what God has promised to you as the children of God in Christ. A membership, a membership of this family brings with it a new destiny. 
a destiny to reign with Christ, to be co-heirs with Jesus in his coming kingdom when he returns. That is who you are if you're a Christian. No matter how hard it feels in this life, it will not change what God has done through Christ and his Holy Spirit dwelling within us. But notice the end of verse 17. There is an if. There's a condition. For this new life will be just like Christ's. It will be a life of suffering, then glory. It will be a life of struggle, but not a struggle without hope of deliverance. We will suffer as Christians, as Christ suffered before us. But remember again, chapter 5, our suffering produces perseverance and, our pers- and perseverance produces character and character produces hope. And the hope we have doesn't disappoint us because we have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of holiness who lives and works within us to lead us to our new destiny, to lead us to holiness, to lead us towards God. If you're a Christian, if you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, that is your life. This is your future. And this is your hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that dwells within us. Father, we thank you for the promise of eternal life, of new bodies, of a kingdom that, Lord, will never again be moved, that cannot be subject to sin and suffering, but is awaited for us when Christ returns. We thank you, Father, for your promises which are sure and true, which are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for the gospel because it makes us new, because it makes us righteous even when we're not, because it allows us to have peace with you, because it brings us into relationship with you, because it gives us hope of a future. Lord, help us to trust in the gospel. Help us to lift our eyes and look to Jesus and not the idols of this world, not to be dragged down by our sinful nature, but to kill it off and to live, Lord, for you with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, and with all our strength, and to love our neighbor as we would love ourselves. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.